This is a podcast from ABC Radio Overnights. I'm Rod Quinn. Diana Reed's first novel, Love and Virtue, was an award-winning story about sex, consent and friendship at university. Her second book is called Seeing Other People and it's about sex, betrayal and family and the romantic entanglements of a pair of sisters over a hot and sultry summer as life slowly returns to normal after the pandemic. With this book, Diana has managed that most difficult of literary achievements, writing a second novel that is better than her first. Diana, welcome back to Overnights. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for that um, introduction. That's that, that's what I fantasised about for months, of people liking this better than my first one. Is it better? Do you think it's better than your first book? Um, I don't know. I think... Um, I certainly tried to push myself in terms of the writing style. So I would like to think that that was um, fruitful and that I've improved as a writer, but it's for the reader to judge. On the front cover, there is in tiny little letters a novel. Do you need to tell people that it's a novel? Why is that on the front cover? I don't know, actually. I think that that's something they do in America. They always say a novel. Um, and I think maybe it was it started as a sort of autofiction thing because I think a lot of if for a lot of authors, especially for their first books, there's a blurry line between um, fiction and reality. So maybe they had to assert that it was a novel. But, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, it, it is what it says on the packet. It's yeah. a novel. <laughs> We spoke last time about the lines that were pretty differentiated between your life and your novel. It was not based on your life. This one, though, it's kind of like your life in the sense that, yes, you're at uni, you wrote a novel about university with love and virtue. The next one is about share houses and people starting a career. Was that deliberate? Yeah, it was. I think, um, well, I suppose I want to write contemporary fiction because that's just what interests me is our social world as I currently experience it. Um, and so I think the easiest thing for me to draw on is a social world that I'm familiar with. So even though all of the characters and the events in this book are not things that have happened to me, the environment that they exist in and the kind of parties they go to and how they socialise is very much based on my life. We'll get to that in a moment. I want to go back to love and virtue, though. How has that changed your life? Oh, completely. And the success of it as well, and the fact that everybody loved it, and it's in bookstores everywhere, and it's now in a second printing because you had the original green cover, now there's a smaller pink version of it as well. Yeah, and, and it's also uh, cheaper. So, yeah. Um, how has it changed? Yeah, well, I suppose it's interesting. So when my publisher bought the book, that completely changed my life because that meant that I could then write full-time. Um, so now it kind of is my life, like that's my job and um, it's obviously I love reading and it's my passion so um, I just feel so lucky to like get up every morning and open a Word document. But in terms of the book coming out, it's actually kind of nice because I think unlike other artistic forms, if you have a book that does well, unless it does like stratospherically well, like a, I don't know, maybe Trent Dalton or something, Nobody really, like, you don't really get recognised on the street or anything or it, it actually doesn't change your day-to-day -day life. It's just I get the odd message on the internet of someone saying they liked it, which is so lovely, but it's not, um, yeah, it's nice because I sort of have the freedom to still go about my work as I did before it was published and then you get these sort of intermittent bursts of validation, which are very encouraging. Already there is a buzz about 
this new book, though. It's in the paper. Here's 10 books we've got to read right now. There's pictures of you, a big picture of you in the paper as well. How do you feel about that? Yeah, it's weird. I sort of feel disassociated from it. Like, I don't really look at the picture and think, that's me. Oh, yeah, it's weird. You think, oh, that's that author. Yeah. Diana Reed. Yeah, it's like a double consciousness or something. I don't know. When did you write the book? Tell us about how the timeline worked out with your first book and now this book as the pandemic unfolded. Yes. So um, I'm in this weird position now of having written two out of my two books in lockdowns. So the first one I wrote in 2020 in the lockdown, and then I sold it to a publisher at the end of that year. So in November 2020. And then my publisher gave me very good advice. And he said that I should start writing the second one immediately, because he sort of thought that if I started writing it before the first one had come out, then whatever the reaction to the first one was, it wouldn't influence my writing. So I took that on board and then I wrote Seeing Other People across 2021. Um, So I ended up writing a lot of it in that long lockdown that we had in Sydney. And then by the time my first book came out in September, I had a very rough first draft. So it still needed to be improved, but I'd settled on a topic and it was kind of too far to go back. So with Love and Virtue, there was the danger, and we talked about it, that readers assumed that it was based on what happened to you or someone you knew. But this story, it's about two sisters and their kind of demimond, their little world. Um, Firstly, do you have any sisters? No, I don't. How were you able to invent in your mind this incredible relationship between these two sisters from someone who doesn't have sisters yeah I guess I use my imagination um I so I drew partly on my um I suppose I drew partly on my very close female friends I have a few friends who I have really grown up with um like we've been friends since we were very young so I think for their kind of codependence and the way that their personalities shape each other I drew on that I I was sort of conscious that my understanding of families um from my own and then observing others is that they are all so specific and they develop their own kind of rituals and their language. So I was very clear that I sort of tried to build the sisters relationship out of their childhood and um, things that had happened to them in their childhood and how they'd responded to it. Because I think that you can't really model a family dynamic on another one that you've seen. I think each family really stands on its own well i think tolstoy said that didn't he you know that all happy families are alike all unhappy families are you know unlike in their own way aren't they yes exactly that's the first line of anna Karenina, famously was there a spark of inspiration for this story did something happen or did you hear a story about something similar to this and you thought "Mm, that's a good idea yeah i heard a story which was actually quite different it was about someone who I didn't know very well had a um, oh had a very close friend who her sister started dating, and I thought, oh, that's an interesting kind of emotional entanglement to be in. Um, and then I also read I was reading a lot of Helen Garner, and I read something about her sister had a affair with her then husband, which she wrote about in a screenplay. Which so that's how I came across it. So there were sort of a few instances of this kind of entanglement cropping up or different variations of it. And um, I guess, yeah, it stuck for some reason. 
And after that, because you're a novelist, because you write fiction, you can make them do anything you like. You don't have to be constrained by what happened in real life. No, exactly. And I think what I was interested in exploring at the time was I I knew I wanted to look at how we draw a line between um, sort of self-fulfillment and self-actualization and just being selfish. And I was doing all this research into self-care and self-love and I hadn't thought of a way to dramatise it yet. And then when I came across a few examples of that particular relationship where your romantic happiness potentially comes at the expense of um, the happiness of someone who you're very close to, I was like, oh, there it is. That's how you dramatise that problem. And justification, self-justification that, yes, we're supposed to be together, so that's the happy ending. You're not supposed to be with this other person, therefore the right thing has happened. Yes, exactly. And that kind of very modern idea that whatever is best for you and whatever makes you the best, happiest version of yourself is necessarily the right course of action. And I sort of wanted to stress test that idea. What about your friends? Are they worried about something they might say could turn out in a book or <laughs> a line they say might uh, turn out to, to be something you quote in the book? No, it's funny. It's I mean, I, I think they know that I um, go to great lengths to fictionalise it and kind of the opposites happened. I, I find sometimes I'm at, in social situations or at parties and people will come up to me and they'll be like, oh, the craziest thing happened to me. You need to hear about it, which I love because I'm a bit of a gossip. So it's nice to be this like local repository <laughs> for crazy stories. Diana Reed is our guest. Her book, her second novel is called Seeing Other People. It is set over a hot summer. What is it about having that kind of heat, that kind of pressure? It's almost suffocating in, in its way. Yeah, I was interested. I, I definitely wanted to write it in summer because I knew that I wanted to set the book post-lockdown because part of that um, theme I wanted to explore of selfishness or self-fulfillment I thought really suited the post-lockdown era because I think there's this sense that people have been stagnating for two years and they've been unable to achieve their goals. So they sort of came out of lockdown and felt like they were playing catch up. And then mm. summer, I think, sort of compounds that sense of it's almost hedonism. It's sort of a, a sense of the year's ending, there's a new beginning, everyone's on holidays and um, anything can happen and I think it's an interesting time to meet characters because I think people feel perhaps there's more of a, I think there's perhaps a feeling that summer is almost like a holiday from real life. And so you can have characters behave in ways that they perhaps wouldn't otherwise. Also, it's a limited time. You know, the summer is going to end. And when that time is over, the story is sort of over. Yeah. Yeah, the story ends in uh, at like the end of March. Yeah. yeah. Also, you kind of shed your skin, you shed your clothes, you go to the beach, you go for a swim, like you are not naked to the world, you're wearing a swimsuit, but, you know, you are showing yourself off to the world. It's a different world that you're living in. Yeah, exactly. It's that, you're so right, it's that weird almost paradox of on the one hand you're more vulnerable and more exposed and then on the other hand you're almost a different person so you've got that kind of freedom of a costume. Yeah. So Sydney the city, is very much a character. You have a great sense of place. You did in the first book. You certainly do with this book as well. You know, the inner suburbs, there's King's Cross, there's the eastern beaches as well. This is part of your life, I presume. It's innate. But did you go out and research and think, right, I want to put this scene here and that scene there? No, I didn't actively go out and do research, but I did think about place a lot. And um, 
I think one of the things that I love about Sydney, and I've I've grown up here, I've lived here my whole life, is that it does have these little villages, and, and I think all of the different areas have such different, almost subcultures. And so, one of the things I sort of grappled with in the early stages of drafting was part of delineating who these two sisters are was putting them in different villages. Mm. So one is more corporate and conventional and she lives in Potts Point and then the other one is sort of bohemian and so she lives in the inner west. But they end up living in different places. So they're changing villages, changing tribes. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and I think that that's – I think for people who grew up in Sydney, that's kind of part of the experience of coming of age is moving across these different – yeah, as you say, moving across these different villages as you kind of like work out who you want to be. You love swimming too, don't you, in real life as well as in the book. That really comes across in the book. Yeah, so the book is, um, yeah, I mean, it, it is fictional, but I think probably a lot of authors do this. You end up putting so much of your interests and your passions into it because if you're going to write for, I don't know, several hours a day, it just helps if you're writing about something <laughs> that you're interested in. Um, and I'm a, yes, I'm a very passionate swimmer and um, it's a summer novel, so they go swimming a lot. And swimming was another thing. Thing I tried to use to show character because the um, the more conventional sister likes swimming her laps. Mm-hmm. Um, I, she's, you know, sort of structured and up and down and swimming is a, a way of her to sort of exert control over her body and also over her mood, um, whereas the other sister is um, she likes swimming in, the, in nature. Mm. Um, swimming was also a part of Love and Virtue, the university student, the main character, Uh, went to the beach with the bloke she was having the affair with. Yeah, I think, I mean, maybe this is just me romanticising it in my head and other people don't feel this, but I think going for a swim is such an intimate thing to do with someone. And I don't know whether it's because you literally are not wearing many clothes or I think, especially in the ocean, there's something about the danger of it and the kind of giving yourself over to the ocean, which makes you a bit more vulnerable than you otherwise would be. So, yeah, I think that when I'm trying to get two characters to bond, I think going for a swim is a a quick way to establish intimacy. And I guess it also, yeah, it's cleansing, it's intimate. Yeah, I don't know. It's also everyone's on the same level there. Yes, it's such an equaliser. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, um, yeah, and I think that's why it's such a, you know, it occupies such a huge place in Australian culture. Diana Reid is our guest. We live in an age where there's often a feeling that you cannot tell somebody else's story or appropriate their experience. Do you think that's true for you? How do you write about men or same-sex relationships if you haven't experienced that or you're not a bloke, obviously? Yeah, it's really difficult, isn't it? And I have I obviously think about it a lot as a novelist and also as someone who's wanting to do the right thing by people. Um, I've, I, I sort of feel like perhaps the way that TV and film are written has kind of Um, saturated our discourse around who's allowed to tell whose story because the nature of writing for TV and film is that they're all written in groups. So if you have a character who's got a a life experience, you just hire someone who shares that experience or you bring someone else into the room. Whereas when you're writing a novel, like the nature of writing a novel is that you can't bring someone else into the room. You can talk to them and you can try and understand their experience and you can do research, but ultimately you're holding the pen or you're at the keyboard. So there there does come a point where you just have to tell their story for them. And I think that we have, if we want to have novels that are interesting and if we want to have novels that aren't all written in the first person, we just have to accept that that's going to happen sometimes. And I think the question is not 
is it allowed to happen at all, but accepting that it will happen, has it been executed well enough and is the story nuanced and complex enough that it doesn't do a disservice to the people who've lived that. You also don't shy away from controversial, or they may not be controversial issues. Drug-taking is a, a part of this book. It's not a major part, but it is a part of this book. And for people maybe, I don't know, people like myself, that I was never part of that, I wonder whether there's been any reaction to that or your feeling about that. Is just that is that now just a normal part of day-to-day life for younger people? Yeah, well, it's publication day, so um, no one's reacted adversely to it yet, but maybe they will. Um, maybe I'll get some complaints that I'm sort of infecting the minds of young people or something. I think for me, I suppose for, for my generation, drugs are more accessible probably than they were previously um, and there's a wider array of options. It's not just like heroin or whatever. But I also think for me in the book drugs were um, a w- another way of showing character because I-, I didn't want to put drug taking in gratuitously just to shock people or to kind of flag that, oh, this is a contemporary book and they do edgy things. I wanted to use drugs as a kind of litmus test for how radical the characters think they are. So some characters are really quite stressed out by drug taking and um, it's not something that they wish to engage in and they're quite uncomfortable. They're made uncomfortable by just being around it. And then other characters, it's like almost a hobby for them. And I think that that's probably true of life as well, that when you ta- when you get something that is sort of exists on the fringes of acceptability, it's a very clear way to showcase people's values. Let's talk about theatre, shall we? There's Mm -hmm. a couple of great quotes, I think, in the book, seeing other people. Theatre is just TV without famous people. (laughs) Yeah, um, that was... um, So I should say that is a quote said by a character who doesn't like theatre, whereas I do. So that was me, again, using my imagination and wondering what what it would be like if you didn't see the point of theatre. Because Charlotte, or Charlie, one of the sisters, she is, well, an actress, a great actress, it seems, who's really on the way up. And as you point out, that Eleanor, the other sister, sits down and watches her in A Doll's House, I think it is, and she knows immediately, well, her sister is so much better than everybody else. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's something that's always fascinated me about theatre, that it's so instinctive. Like I love that people who don't even care about it very much or even watch it very much can just tell immediately if someone's a good actor or not. Yeah. Then there's a superb observation, I think. She particularly hated those self-congratulatory laughs. This is where Eleanor is sitting there and observing the people watching the theatre. And I have... I mean, I've thought that myself and was unable to put it into words as you have. But there's something about, especially early on in a performance, when people laugh. (laughs) So I get the joke. Yeah. Yeah, I'm always interested. I guess as someone who is creating cultural products, I'm always very interested in how people engage in art and whether they're engaging as a passive audience member, just kind of taking the text as they find it, or whether they're engaging for the purpose of 
I guess, like class performance. And I think that that's a really interesting idea that when you go to the theatre, it's not just the people on stage who are performing. A lot of the people in the audience are there because they're performing being a particular type of person or someone who's interested in the right things. And I think that the way they respond to the text often is not like an organic response or an emotive response. It's them trying to signal that they are like they're understanding it in the right ways and Mm. that they have the right opinions. Are you ready for either of these novels to be performed on the stage? Oh, um, yeah, I mean, ready and waiting. (laughs) Yeah, If if anyone had any interest in doing that, that would be awesome. It would be very cool to see it come to life in that way. The choice of some of your characters, the names, Eleanor and Charlotte, they sound like something out of a Jane Austen novel. Was that deliberate or...? Yeah, it's not very subtle. Um, the Yeah, so the two sisters, one has sort of more sense and the other one has more sensibility. And <laughs> okay. um, the one with more sense is called Eleanor. Um, it's spelt differently yes. to the way Jane Austen spells it, but yeah, it's the same name. And then Charlotte is... Um, I actually don't want to say this because it kind of gives away a twist in the plot. Sure. Okay, all right, say no more. Their last name is Hamer or Hamor, is mm-hmm. it? Like Amor, love, was that deliberate as well? Oh, yeah, it was deliberate. Um, I was like, I was just looking at pairs of sisters in literature and the um, in Howard's End there's two great sisters who are quite similar actually in their dynamic to the Jane Austen one in that the younger one is um, sort of more emotional and the older one's a bit more rational and they're called the Schlegel sisters. Yeah, Margaret Schlegel. Margaret, yeah, and Helen Schlegel. Schlegel is hammer in German. So, yeah, anyway, we're going the long way around. So the Amor part of it was a complete fluke unless E.M. Forster was also making that joke. Um, no, that was a fluke. Oh, maybe he was. I don't, yeah, that was a fluke. But, you know, the author's dead and I love that reading of it. So thank you. You've improved it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. The story, was it all set out in advance? Did you kind of storyboard it in your mind or did you make it up as you went along? Did you know how it was going to end? I didn't know how it was going to end, no. So once I have an idea for the central conflict, I then basically make it up as I go along. So I just write as many scenes as I can think of sort of surrounding that conflict um, so I get a better feel for who the characters are and also who the supporting characters are and what role they play. And then when I've done about 60,000 words of that, I go back and I work out what's worth keeping and then I build a plot out of that. There's a lot of dialogue, which is unusual for some novels. They have all description and very little dialogue. Do you kind of sound it out in your mind? Do you talk to other people and have a conversation? How do you work out the dialogue? Yeah, I do. I sort of sound it out in my mind. Yeah, it makes me sound a bit crazy and I mean, I guess the aim is obviously to write dialogue as organically as possible. You don't want to write dialogue just to parrot, you know, your own opinions or just to shove the plot along. Yeah, you don't want it to be all exposition. Exactly. So I do sometimes just read the dialogue aloud and if it sounds awkward coming out of my mouth, then I change it. What about the title then? How long did it take you to come up with that? And oh, where, where ages. did it come from? Really? <laughs> yeah, I'm really bad at titles. <laughs> um, no, I think Love and Virtue and Seeing Other People are great titles. Oh, thanks so much. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I mean, they're, they're, I'm stuck with them now. They're, it's all gone to print. I just struggled for ages with the title, and it was just called Draft on my desktop for a really long time. Um, and then. I can't remember when I settled on seeing other people, but I liked it because it has a double meaning um, because obviously seeing in the sort of euphemistic context of like romantically seeing someone 
and then also seeing, uh, I guess, part of the book is about the kind of moral effort that is required to really understand other people, yes. even people that you think you know very well. So it's also seeing people in that sense. Seeing as another person rather than just seeing the person that you thought you always knew. Yes, exactly. You're not that person. Yeah. You love reading big, thick books, Middlemarch, Bleak House, things like that. Do you think you could write a big, thick book? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. I don't know if that would be the best career move, to be honest. I don't think those tomes are as popular as they used to be. And I should say I experience, maybe that's just me sort of universalising my own experience, but when I see a, a really thick book that's a new release, I'm very put off by it. Like I think I need the weight of a canon to like assure me that those 900 pages are going to be worth my time, which is, um, yeah, maybe that's just me being lazy but yeah so what are you going to work on next then you must have ideas or you must be working on something now that you are a full-time novelist yeah I am um I'm working on a third book for my publisher Ultimo Press and um I'm not going to say anything about it yeah I think I always get nervous talking about it when it's um in the drafting phase because I suppose I feel with books that the work of the whole novel is the work of best articulating this idea that you have. And so when you haven't finished that work yet and you try to talk about it, you can't talk about it because you haven't worked out how to articulate it yet, otherwise you would have finished the book. Does that make sense? Yeah. So is it a contemporary book? Is it set in Australia? I'm not going to (laughs) say. I cannot wait to read it though. Diana, thank you so much for coming in again. The very best of luck with seeing other people. It's fantastic. I can't wait to see it on the stage as well. Oh, thank you so much for having me and for reading it. It's been such a pleasure. And that was another podcast from ABC Radio Overnights. I'm Rod Quinn. Thanks for listening.